fast on windows in a bowl of soup at lunch. moon and cold winter sky and vegetables on the back steps. True nature reveals itself everywhere. Many years ago boyfriend at the time learned that Allen Ginsberg was giving a talk a performance at McMaster University in one of the buildings there. He's kind of a field host and I really didn't know much about him at all but my boyfriend did and he said oh it will be good. So we were living in Toronto and we went over uh, to McMaster and got into the field house and we were early so I said that was not special seating so you could seat anywhere. So I said Let, we could sit in the front row at that point so I said let's sit in the front row, I like see everything. So we were sitting in the front row. And the first thing that happened was that there was this young fellow who played an Indian musical instrument for quite a while. And then he introduced Allen Ginsberg, who began to uh, recite uh, some of his poetry. And in between poems, he would play the harmonium and sing body songs, P-A-W-D-Y. <laughs> it felt to me, I thought, wow, who could be so outrageous as saying all these things on the stage? I was quite an innocent girl at that time. <laughs> and, but, but with uh, uh, his being just out as a homosexual and out with just about everything else, there was a real kind of earthy wisdom about him. So when it was half time, I thought, Here's this guy, I, you know, I heard that he was studying meditation with Tibetan masters, Ram Das, and all of this. So I thought, oh, I must ask him a question. This is a wonderful opportunity. So there was a, a row of people waiting to ask him a question. And he was standing on the stage, got his hair kind of frizzy out like this, with these wire glasses on, kind of a big grin on his face. And so I waited and waited, my turn. And when I thought I should ask him a question, I didn't know what question I should ask him. <laughs> but when I got there, what sort of fumbled out of my mouth was, what is the most important thing? It evolved. That would be a good question. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so 
Without hesitation, he just said, breath. And I was sorely disappointed. I was more like, you know, peace of mind or, you know, world peace or, you know, everyone compassion and wise. I knew, you know, we have to have breath to live, but the most important thing? So I was, uh, you could see I was a little dumbfounded or I didn't appreciate his, his answer. So I kind of, you know, bought. And then I went back to my seat, and he answered some more questions. And then when the second half came, he began, and I think it was in response uh, to my bewilderment with his answer, uh, to do one of his famous poems, now I see it's famous, uh, about the breath. And um, so it was about someone meditating, and describing the breath coming in and out of the nostrils and the mouth. Beautiful language. And then he had the breath as part of a energy that went all around the body and through the body. I thought, huh, that's interesting. Then the next verses came with the breath going, connecting with the energy in the whole room and then out the windows and into the sky and the trees outside the building where the poem was taking place. And then this meditator reading and connecting out to other parts of the world, to some holy places in India and in South America. And he described very, very beautifully all of these connections of the breath and even to some honky-tonk bars in New York City and in Montana, you know, that kind of thing. That, uh, and, uh, and then there, at the end, he just stopped. He kind of looked at me, and then he went on with the rest of the program. So I thought he'd given me to a clue about how the breath was so important, but I didn't really get it because I had not had any kind of experience like that with my breath. I mean, it was very mundane to me. Yeah. So my life unfolded, and I took yoga training several times, and we did all kinds of stuff with our breath. If you've taken yoga, you'll know about all the different kinds of pranayama, ways to breathe. But I still didn't kind of get what Allen Ginsberg was talking about. Then I went on, and one day I went back to Vancouver to visit my family, and I put my young daughter with, well, my mother was quite happy to have her. And um, I went to the New Age Community Center, and um, I was looking around to see what was going on in Vancouver at the time, because I didn't spend as much time, of course, I'd been away for a while. It turned out, very interesting kind of coincidence in the universe, you probably had your own version of it, the person who was at the temple over on Markham Street, where it used to be there, was giving a workshop. She had taught me how to do prostrations for the first time, jagwan. 
And she was there with the Sunam Kunkuria. And they were teaching something called Sundo. And so, I mean, I was really excited. So I dialed the number and I phoned up. John, it's Haji. Suka was my name then. And so we were excited to, to speak to each other because the last time I had seen her was when I was on a pilgrimage in Korea and she had accompanied Sunim and I and a couple of others. I didn't know how she got back to Vancouver. I thought she was going to be staying in Korea for the rest of her life. She said, well, come on over. We'll show you what we're doing. So I went over to this um, office building where they had rented a suite. And uh, they showed me how to do the sundo, which was a kind of breathing. And um, it was paying attention to the breath in the Tanshin area. And every day that I was there, I was able to go for a while, a few hours each day, I would go and do this sando, this Taoist breathing, uh, which they were teaching. And I started the first two or three days just on my back on the floor learning how to do it. And then I learned how to do it standing up. And then with simple exercises, and there was this beautiful chanting that went with it. So it was a um, kind of um, fascinating practice. And when I went back to Ann Arbor, I said to Hunam Sunam, well, can I continue this practice, you know, when I go back to Ann Arbor? He said, oh, it's a very powerful practice, you know. You have to be careful and disciplined. Well, I will be, I said. So he gave me a tape, and he gave me a picture of these simple exercises, very simple, that we did with the breathing. And I would get up an hour early before practice. For a couple of years I did that, to do this sando. And I found that it was a kind of an invisible process, but it just, I don't know how to say it, maybe in retrospect, it made me feel a little ageless for a while. And I took that into my morning practice. It's quite powerful. So, so I was doing that, and I was raising kids, and I was doing my yoga sometimes. I was teaching yoga at the temple. And what happened is then, when we were doing a two-day retreat, and it was winter like this, and dark at the nights, and the trees were all bare-branched. And I remember being the timekeeper and sitting, and uh, be, rang the bell so that everybody could stretch or go out and then take a little walk. And I was doing my breathing with my meditation practice. And I looked out the window, and there was the moon hanging in the branches of the bare trees. And all of a sudden, this whole thing that Allen Ginsberg, because up until then, I didn't get what he meant, but I really felt the connection it loved me, the room, and the night sky, and the moon. And it, he had, in his last lines, had the meditator in touch with the whole universe, sort of going out from the world, the earth. So that's what Allen Ginsberg was trying to get at for me. So I had an experience, of, a brief one, of a deep interconnection. And, um, so then I 
who went on with my life and I began to teach meditation and emphasize the breath more than I had before because I myself had found it to be so very powerful. It really helped my concentration and my well-being, I think. So I have been in some interviews with some of you emphasizing breathing because of my own experience. And you may not have experienced interconnection with the whole world yet and the whole universe. It may have been something as intimate as just this, just here, just now. But as we train our minds through the use of the breath, our concentration deepens. And so we're able to be fully present and clear in each moment. So I'd like you uh, to take this seriously, because like me, you may just feel the breath is pretty perfunctory. It gets you. Why? But are you really seeing how it enlivens your whole body when you get with it? It enlivens your whole practice. You have to pay attention to it. And it takes work. So this reminds me of a couple of stories. One is about a student who went to a swordmaster by the name of Bon <coughs> And he sort of made a bow to the swordmaster and said he wanted to become his student. Uh, I see, said the master. And uh, how long will it take me to be a master? So Bonjour, 10 years, the student. What? I'm actually a really good student. It shouldn't take me 10 years. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So then the master said, well, 20 years. (laughs) Well, then he said, what? You don't understand. You do not realize how well I will apply myself. I already am pretty good. Well, then, 30 years. (laughs) Well, could you explain why, asked the student. He said, because anyone who has such little patience will really take a long time. So the process that we're in now is that we have to have some patience because so much is coming up. We're in the composting process, or we get it all, the stuff that needs to be composted. Yeah. And then there's another story. So first it's the patience story. You have to get that. But that means that just allow each thing to be and for you to be with it. <clears throat> Instead of trying to be somewhere else at some other stage. Everything counts in this process. So the next story is about dear old Gyeong Hyo Sunim. And he and his student, Mon Gom, these are two famous Korean monks and masters, went out on a begging round, and they went to uh, the villages around the monastery collecting rice. And uh, so the villagers would all give uh, a little rice, and Mongam, the student of Kyunghyo, was carrying it. So the, ri- the rice sack got fuller and fuller and fuller, 
And then it was time to get back to the monastery. So Mangam had quite a sack and he had it over his shoulder and he was starting to complain. They had quite a ways to get back. And oh, gee, this, this sack of rice is really heavy. Why don't those villagers just bring the rice to the temple themselves? <laughs> kind of a complaining mind. And uh, it's on and on and they were going heavy, heavy, tired, tired. So it just happened when they were sort of going through the last little group of villages, village houses, that a young woman came out and uh, she had a, a big a jar of water on her head, and Gyeongkyo uh, uh, just uh, gave her a big embrace and gave her a big smooch. And the water fell off, and she was screaming. This monk ran back in the house. This terrible monk! He just kissed me. He's just made me drop the bottle. And all of the family came out where they had clubs and whatever they could pick up, pots and pans, and they began to chase Mongum and These Bat monks, bat monks, and wow, Mongum really had to run, and Gyeongho really ran, and they finally got over a hill and sort of passed the village limits, so the villagers just went, those monks, you know? And so they're the two monks, you know, on top of this little hill, and Gyeongho. And uh, uh, Mangam is saying, you know, this, wow, we really, uh, really had to run to get away from those, those villagers. What about this heavy rice sack that you've got? You've been carrying all this way in the run. And Mangam said, what heavy? When he was really concentrated, he didn't have much idea of heavy or hard or complain. So, and in fact, he had a lot more energy than he thought he did. So I tell you these stories for you, your own patience with your practice and yourself, and to show that if you just get to it, after all, you've made a commitment to be here, then the energy will come. You'll be surprised. Even with all of the complaints, you know, that come up, you have a lot more energy than you think you do. And of course, we have a lot more time left in the Young Rain Junction, so really make good use of the time, patience. So I'd like you, for the rest of this retreat, as long as you are still here, to really take initiative to help yourself. Take initiative. There's something about just sitting and waiting, but that is initiative too. You just be fully present. So I would say, stand up and quietly do prostration. If you feel that your body needs to change in some way, between the different periods of meditation, you can go and sit on a chair. Take some walk around. Even go down to 
this alcohol, have some tea. At night, after 10, take initiative to do a little extra practice. One of the things that I always liked to do when I was doing extra practice was to sit in front of the Buddha figure. I really love this Buddha figure because it looks like it's been a little bit worn out. There's some of the gold is worn off it in places, so I, I kind of identify it. We're all a little worn out in a certain sense. And I would sit in front of the Buddha just gazing. I found that I think they made the Buddha figures, at least our one in Ann Arbor, is so that the candlelight lights up the eyes and the eyelids and the features in a really special way. I haven't been looking at this one so much, but as a result of my Buddha gazing, Buddhas can come to life in a beautiful way for us. And then we can do a practice. If you have bigger beads or smaller beads, you can use them and say, I'm going to go around my beads five times. Then I'll go to bed. So doing some extra practice, even doing some prostrations, some walking. The more you do in many senses, within reason, the more you will be able to do. Especially if you make good effort with your breathing practice, along with perhaps your wadu or whatever else you're doing for your meditation practice. I mean, people are doing a lot of different things here. But the breath is what inspires it all. Are you hearing me? Yes! yes. Well, then I'm hearing you say, yes! <laughs> so remember, it is not that you cannot do it. This is a really important little saying that I say frequently, even to myself. It is that you do not do it. <laughs> it is not that you cannot do it. In fact, everyone is much more capable, patient, energetic, and concentrated than you really believe. You all have a lot going for you, all you Buddhas. <laughs>